Jesus knew very well that he was polarizing. It was no surprise. It was completely expected. If you know anything about Jesus, you have to take a position. The only way you can take a neutral position on Jesus is if you don't know what he said or you don't know what he said about himself. He said things like, before Abraham was, I am. He said, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself said, Whatever, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So either what Jesus said is true or it's not true. Either what Jesus said about himself being the son of God is true or it's not true. And that truth will either powerfully unite friends and family or it will divide friends and family. And when Jesus was in his peak ministry years, people reacted to him in various ways. You had the religious leaders who were feeling profoundly threatened by him. They were feeling jealous of him and they wanted to kill him. Others followed Jesus only superficially. They followed him because of what they could get from him. And some reacted to Jesus by believing that, in fact, he is the Son of God, and they devoted their lives to him. And it's not that different today. We're going to see these three reactions to Jesus in our passage for today. And if you brought your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. If you want to turn there, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, 
What she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. In Mark chapter 14, we're entering the final days of Jesus' life and ministry. And in these opening verses, we're starting down the road to the most significant events in all of human history. The suffering, the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. All of redemptive history is leading up to this. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God promised a Savior. He promised a Messiah who would come to us, and he would do all that was necessary in order to purchase our salvation. And all of the Old Testament points forward to the coming of this Messiah. And in Mark 14, this Messiah is here. He's been living. He's been ministering. He's been obeying the Father perfectly. And very soon, he was going to willingly lay down his life as the perfect Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And from the outside, it looked like things were about to spin out of control. Jesus was going to be arrested. He was going to be killed. It looks like a hugely promising and and hugely life-altering ministry was going to be coming to a tragic end. And none of this is a surprise to God. God's plan from eternity past was exactly going to be coming to fruition. God didn't have to now try to scramble and try to figure out, oh no, what am I going to do now? How do I draw good out of this death of my son. What am I going to do here? How do I redeem this thing? None of this is an accident. We see all of these events prophesied in the Old Testament, and it's all being precisely carried out through the sovereign, providential hand of God. We see several characters here in in the uh, unfolding story that's coming up, but behind all of this is God himself. It's the culminating fulfillment of all the prophecies, all the foreshadows of the Old Testament looking forward to the coming of this Messiah. And in our text and in our day, we see three reactions to Jesus. At least we see three here. And Mark here in this text presents them like a sandwich, which he did on a number of occasions in his writing. On the top, we see the danger, and we see the evil conspiracy of the religious leaders who wanted to try and kill Jesus. And then on the bottom, we see the treacherous betrayal of one of his followers. And in the middle, then, we have this striking contrast of this beautiful expression of worship and adoration to Jesus. And when Mark does this, it's often the middle portion That's really the key to the whole thing. So later today, if someone asks you what you had for breakfast, you could say, I had a Markin sandwich. Actually, that would probably be second breakfast. 
right? Because you already had one. How many of you have second breakfast? So let's look at these three reactions. And um, as we do, we should always reflect on our own hearts. The first reaction to Jesus we see is the open enemy. The open enemy. And for the open enemy, Jesus is a problem to get rid of. For the open enemy, Jesus is a problem to get rid of. Verses 1 and 2, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The chief priests and the scribes here would have been part of the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling council of the Jews. And they saw Jesus as an enemy. They felt threatened by him. They were jealous of these huge, huge crowds of followers that were flocking to Jesus. They were nervous about it because of all this uproar and what that could do, maybe attracting attention of the Romans. They thought they might lose their power. And in John chapter 11, it says, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees counseled among themselves and they said, well, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Actually, they've been looking for a way to put him to death all the way back to Mark chapter 3. This wasn't a new idea. But Jesus needed to be completely removed from the scene. He was a troublemaker. So they took counsel together, and they were scheming and conspiring together on how to do this. But they wanted to try to find a way that they could arrest him sort of quietly so that it wouldn't cause this huge uproar among the people. So this was at the time of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And every year at this time, the population of Jerusalem would at least double or sometimes triple as followers would come into Jerusalem from all around the area to celebrate these feasts. And back in the book of Exodus, we remember that on the night before God delivered the Jews from slavery in Egypt, he pronounced the judgment on the Egyptians. And he said that on this night, the angel of death was going to visit every house. And he was going to put to death the firstborn in every house. But it was God's plan to spare the Jews from this judgment. So he told the Jews, get yourself a lamb, a spotless lamb. And I want you to kill this lamb. And I want you to take the blood from this lamb. And I want you to put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of your, of your doorway so that when the angel of death comes by to put to death the firstborn, the angel of death would see this blood on the door and pass over that house. So the Passover feast was a time to remember God's deliverance from Israel, from slavery in Egypt. So this feast was a time of, of heightened nationalism. It was a time of passion. 
very often when the, the crowds gathered in Jerusalem. And the passions would be running high, and the Sanhedrin knew that there would be a lot of Jesus' followers who would be coming into Jerusalem at that time. So they tried to find some kind of sneaky way to quietly arrest Jesus to avoid this uproar. They didn't want to attract negative attention from the Romans. Certainly don't do this during the Passover. But of course, God being God and God putting his plan into place, it was going to be exactly at the Passover when Jesus was going to be arrested, falsely accused and crucified. Jesus would clearly and dramatically fulfill this powerful picture pointing to him as the sinless, spotless Passover lamb who would be slain for the sins of all mankind. And that wasn't just a historical event. It's not just a story in the Bible. If you place your trust in the Messiah, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Messiah, you repent of your sin, the blood of Christ is applied to your heart by the Holy Spirit. And at the day of judgment, God will pass over you because the judgment was taken by his son. There is a judgment still to come, and God made a way of escape through his son. And if you have never trusted in Christ and placed your faith in Jesus as your Messiah, don't wait. None of us knows when that last day is. None of us knows. But the chief priest saw Jesus as a problem to get rid of. He was the problem. And many today just see Jesus that way. They attack the church for preaching Jesus, for preaching God's truth, because to them it's a problem. The scripture very often runs against the grain of the culture. To say that something is wrong or something is immoral these days is the, is the height of intolerance. And intolerance is the sin of all sins in our culture today. On issue after issue, our culture has turned morality completely on its head, and I don't have to convince you of that. God says this through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 5, he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So they tried to silence Jesus. They tried to silence, today even, silence Christians, silence Jesus, silence churches. There's pressures all the time. And they're probably going to get heavier. The good news of the gospel is anathema to many parts of our culture. So the first reaction is the open enemy. The second reaction to Jesus we see in the passage is the devoted follower. And for the devoted follower, Jesus is the Savior to be worshipped. Jesus is the Savior to be worshipped. And in the middle of the Markin sandwich, we see a beautiful expression of worship and adoration from one of Jesus' followers. It says in verse 3, it says, While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So Jesus was invited to this dinner at Bethany. And Mark places this part of the story here for thematic reasons. But it actually took place the prior Saturday. The Apostle John places this dinner chronologically on Saturday. And the chief priests conspired together on Wednesday, which was two days before the Passover. And Bethany was just east of Jerusalem. It wasn't very far. It was a town where we remember that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and that amazing miracle. And they were at the home of Simon the leper, or as we should probably call him, Simon the former leper, right? Right? Because if you got an invitation to a dinner party at Simon's house and you knew he was a leper in that day, your RSVP would probably say, no, no, no thanks. Thank you. And leprosy was a set of skin diseases they lumped into one, and they thought they were very highly contagious. And so anybody who had leprosy was separated from everybody else. So he wouldn't be throwing a dinner party unless he was a former leper, and he was very likely healed by Jesus. So he would have wanted to have a a dinner for Jesus and show some gratitude And the Apostle John also writes about this dinner in John chapter 12. He gives us some helpful details. He tells us that at this dinner was also Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha, and there were probably at least 15 people there. There would have been these, and you would also have the, the, the disciples and any other invited guests, anybody else who was there. And it says that they were reclining at the table. And historically, in a dinner like this, you would have seen a low table, kind of near the ground. And the people would be sort of reclining, sort of on their side, maybe resting on an elbow on a thin mat. And their legs would be sort of radiating out apart, away from the table. And then a woman shows up. And Mark and Matthew don't identify the woman at the center of the story, but John tells us that it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And Mary does something extremely unusual. You wouldn't have expected this at all. She comes in in the middle of this dinner, which she wouldn't have done, and she has this alabaster flask of fragrant ointment of pure nard. Now the flask was made out of alabaster, which would have been a white stone, kind of like a, like a marble, and it would have, been, would have had sort of a, t- a thin neck toward the top. And probably had some kind of a stopper in the top that allowed her to cap the flask and maybe even to pour out just a few drops of this, this fragrant ointment, this oil. So she could pour out a few drops at a time. The flask itself probably had some good value. And it wasn't necessarily unusual for someone at a, throwing a party to have some perfume ready. 
to be able to sprinkle it on their guests because they didn't have the same kinds of hygiene habits that we have today and the kinds of products, you know, for cleaning and deodorant and all that stuff. So thank you for the perfume, really, thank you. But not this kind of perfume and not this quantity and not for this purpose. So Mary had a flask of pure nard, which was an aromatic oil or perfume that would have been uh, derived from a root of a plant found in, in India. And it was very expensive. And she didn't have just a little bit of this perfume. I mean, a lot of times, you know, I don't know, I don't buy perfume. I just, I don't buy perfume. And um, so I don't know how you do this. You know, I don't know how you guys actually go into a place where there's perfume and pick one. It's like, I don't know how you do that. You certainly don't buy a lot, right? You buy like an ounce or two, right? And it can be pretty expensive for just an ounce or two. And it, but you only use a drop or so at a time, and it goes a long way, right? You're certainly not buying this kind of perfume on the shelf at Mark's. And you certainly don't buy it by the jug, right? So John says that Mary had a pound of pure nard. So this was quite a quantity. And a pound in that, at that time would have been a Roman pound, which was something a little bit less than 12 ounces. So you might think of a can of pop, or cop pop, soda? Pop. Soda. Whatever, you know what I'm talking about, right? So she had this pound of pure nard. It was extremely valuable. Mark said it was very costly. And we see in verse 5 that it was worth about 300 denarii. How much is 300 denarii? Well, a, den a denarius would have been what you would have earned for a, a day of labor, you know, a day labor, a daily wage. So this would have been about a, a year's worth of salary, the cost of this pure nard. Thousands of dollars. And it would have been rare, actually, for a woman in that day to be able to earn enough money to buy that amount of Purinard. So it may actually have been a family heirloom. And what does Mary do with it? She doesn't measure out a few drops for Jesus and then put the stopper back in. I don't know how she broke it, but she broke this flask and she dumped it on Jesus' head. Dumped the whole thing. She committed the whole contents of this flask for this anointing purpose. And John says that she poured it on his feet. Jesus said that she anointed his body so when pouring it on his head, I'm sure it dripped on onto his body. And I'm sure when she poured it on his feet. John gives a couple more details, too, just the humility of, of Mary. When she poured it on his feet, this would have been something, perfume on the feet would have been done by the lowest servant in the house. And then it says she undid her hair and, and she wiped his feet with her hair, which would have been also very highly unusual, a very humble act from Mary. So basically, she gave him a little nard bath, 
It was an act of pure devotion and adoration and worship. And the disciples were very moved and blessed by it, weren't they? Actually, it says the disciples were indignant. They were furious. They were hot with anger. Verses 4 and 5, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Mary, what are you doing? How could you be so careless and wasteful with such a valuable asset? We could have sold that pure nard and given the money to the poor. What are you doing? probably thought they sounded very spiritual. Were they right? Yeah, I mean, in one sense, they were right. They could have sold it, and they could have given money to the poor, right? But they were missing something hugely important going on here. Listen, this isn't one of just one of the guests invited to a dinner party. Do you know who you're talking about here, disciples? This is Jesus, the Son of God. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the Lord of glory, the Prince of Peace. This is the Son of God you have in your midst. Kind of a waste, you think this is. This is not a waste. Why didn't you rejoice at such an extravagant expression of worship of the Son of God? John tells us that it was Judas Iscariot who scolded Mary, and the others joined in. Now, when Judas scolded her, he didn't have in mind this pure motive. You know, let's feed the poor. John says Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas was a thief. He was pilfering money from the disciples. And he would have been very glad, actually. Let's sell this pure nard for 300 denarii, and then we'll put it in the money bag, and I'll have more in my pocket. So I'm sure these disciples felt very justified in their harsh judgment of Mary. And actually, they probably had half an eye on Jesus, you know, like, see, you know, how responsible we are. In our judgment here, you know, surely Jesus would agree with us how wasteful this was. Well, how did Jesus react? Verses 6 to 9, he said, But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has done a beautiful thing to me, he says, and he praises her for it. And here's yet another declaration from Jesus that he knew that he was going to be arrested and killed. 
He said it three other times, Mark 8, 9, and 10. And Jesus knew that his hour had come. This is why he came. And she has anointed my body in advance for burial. This is good. This is important. And not only did Jesus receive this beautiful act of worship, but he makes the most amazing commendation of Mary and her gift. He says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What a beautiful commendation of Mary and her sacrificial gift to Jesus. And what are we doing now? We're fulfilling this statement of Jesus. We're proclaiming what Mary has done here. All over the world, her story is going to be told. And what a rebuke then to the disciples and their harsh judgment of Mary. We should say something here about verse 7. When Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, He's not denigrating the poor. He's not downplaying the need for compassionate care for the poor. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 15.11. It is a fact that you will always have the opportunity to meet the needs of the poor, and we should. There are lots of commands to care for the poor, for the widows, for the vulnerable. But Jesus is making an important statement here about the occasion. He said, you will not always have me, in verse 7. It's not a statement of ego. This is not pride and haughtiness. Jesus is the Son of God. This is Emmanuel in your midst. And he was here, and he knew that he was going to soon be returning to the Father. And this is a unique moment that you will never have again. Jesus' physical time here on earth is coming to an end, and you will never again have this opportunity that you have right now. It's such a beautiful picture of how Jesus sees our gifts of worship to him. He graciously received this gift of worship from Mary. He received it. And she sacrificed greatly with probably her most valuable asset that she had. She couldn't do a lot for her Savior, but she could do this. She couldn't stop the machinery of the crucifixion of Christ that was soon to come, but she could do this. She did what she could with what she had, and none of us can do everything, but we can all do something in worship of our Savior. In God's eyes, what we do for him is praiseworthy and will be rewarded one day. Jesus is going to be poured out to save our souls. Surely I can pour out what I have for him. It's a great challenge for us, isn't it? You think about what God has given you. 
He's entrusted you with so much. You've been given a level of energy. You've been given talents and abilities and spiritual gifts and influence and financial resources. How are you using what God has given you in worship of our Savior? How are you using it? Have you jammed the stopper in the flask so that you can meet out just a few drops for Jesus now and then? Or have you broken it and you're pouring out yourself out of what God has given me in service to him and worship to him? Jesus doesn't focus all of his attention on the amount. He looks at the level of your sacrifice. He looks at the condition of your heart. Remember in Mark chapter 12, where Jesus was watching the people put their money in the, in the box for donations. Remember what he said about the poor widow's gift? He said this, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow, widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Jesus is far more interested in the heart of the giver than the gift itself. He's interested in the sacrifice. And when you sacrifice for the Lord, there will be some who will criticize you. Wow, what a waste. You know what you could have done with that thing? You could have done this other thing with all of that. Or criticize you for going off to a dangerous mission field for the sake of the gospel. And I'm sure Mary knew she would be criticized and judged because that was very unusual what she did. But she didn't flinch in her sacrifice. This is Jesus. Do what moves you to, what Jesus moves you to do with all of your heart. I've gotten some been very grateful for nice gifts that I've gotten over the years. And every time I've received a gift, I was very blessed. I was very encouraged. But one of the most valuable gifts I've ever received in my whole life, the one that touched my heart the deepest, I got from my son when he was about, I don't know, six years old maybe. He's, he's 28 now. Is that right, sweetie? He's 28? Yes, she's nodding. He's 28 years old now. And it's just an envelope, and it says, to dad. To dad from Austin. It's three dollar bills and two quarters. I kept it. He gave me what he had.
Did I need 350? Wasn't going to pay off, pay off my mortgage. <laughs> what has God given you? Have you broken the, pl- the flask and poured it out for your Savior? It has nothing to, to do with trying to, to pay back Jesus. You could never do that. You can never pay back Jesus. It's a sincere heart of worship and devotion and adoration. He has given you everything. He poured himself out to save you and deliver you from judgment and sin and to give you an eternal inheritance. That's the second reaction. We see a third reaction to Jesus in verses 10 to 11. Number three, the secret pretender. For the secret pretender, Jesus is a means to an end. Jesus is a means to an end. Verse 10 says that Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. It says, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The 12 disciples were handpicked by Jesus. And they saw his love, they saw his compassion for those who were lost and vulnerable and poor. He saw him, all of them saw him do miracle after miracle. They saw his zeal for righteousness and truth. And they heard him teach, they heard the profound wisdom coming from the Son of God including Judas. But all that didn't matter much to Judas. He didn't follow Jesus out of a pure heart of devotion for this long-awaited Messiah. Judas followed Jesus for Judas' sake. To try to ride Jesus' coattails to power and influence and to steal from the money bag. Judas looked like one of the gang. He lived, he ate, he moved along with the other disciples, but he was not a genuine devoted follower of Jesus. Jesus was a means to an end. And when it looked like it was all going to be falling apart and Jesus wasn't going to fulfill all his fantasies, it was time to cash out. So Judas offered the chief priests what they were desperate for, a sneaky, stealthy, quiet way to arrest Jesus and Judas would lead them to Jesus after dark. And they promised to give him money, 30 pieces of silver, we find out later. He sold out Jesus for the price required to redeem a slave, according to Leviticus 27. It was a heartbreaking betrayal by a friend. But even that was part of God's sovereign plan. Had to happen. And it fulfilled Psalm 41, verse 9. It says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Nothing more heartbreaking than to be betrayed and abandoned by a friend. 
There were many people who flocked to Jesus to, to get something from him, to get what he offered. But their hearts were all about the gifts and not the giver. Jesus was a means to an end. We remember the story where Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 with a couple loaves of bread, a couple fish. It says they all ate and they were satisfied, and they had leftovers. And then many of them in the crowd went on to try to find him again, but Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they weren't coming to follow after him. They just wanted to get their bellies filled. It says in John 6, 23 to 26, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus then answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He was a means to an end. Some people come to church for a variety of reasons, kind of a mix of reasons. Some of them are full of devotion to Jesus, and some of them are just kind of wanting to see what the church can offer. They may come to a church to find a mate. They may come to a church to get a free meal. They may come to church to meet some nice people. It's definitely a great blessing to be around the people of God, right? It's a place where there's love and acceptance and compassion for one another, support for one another. But the heart of everything in the church is our love and devotion for our Savior. That's the heart of our gatherings. We worship Jesus, right? Everything else is overflow blessing. Everything else is the fruit of our devotion to Christ. Everyone is welcome to join us, you know, with what we've got going on. We don't shut the door to anybody who wants to come in and join us for what we're doing. We, we love whoever walks through our doors. And even if your initial reason for coming may have been blessings and not the Savior, he may initially have been a means to an end, initially. But our goal is always, always, always that you know our Savior that you know the blessing of knowing our Savior, that you would hear the gospel, that you would be wooed to our Savior by his love, by his grace, by his mercy, and that you would find what we have found, true joy in knowing our Savior. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to experience the greatest blessing. It's not the stuff that Jesus offers. It's him This passage has a lot to say, and it's a mirror into our hearts. What's your reaction to Jesus? As a disciple of Jesus Christ, do you measure out a few drops for Jesus? Or do you break the flask and continue pouring out yourself in worship to the Son of God? 
Jesus laid down his life to purchase your salvation. And our sacrifice to him might be costly, but it is never too much. I want to close with a few stanzas from a poem by C.T. Studd. It's familiar to many of you. It says, only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done, and when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your own only Son. Thank you for your compassionate, merciful, gracious plan of redemption. And Lord, as we enter into these weeks, as we think about the Passion Week of Christ. May our hearts be moved in a fresh way to worship you, to worship you with all of who we are. Thank you for the example of Mary here. We pray, God, that you would move in our hearts in only the way that you can. Move in us that we may pour out ourselves in worship to our Savior. And Lord, hear our worship, hear our praise as we sing again. You are worthy. There is no one worthy except you. In Christ's name we pray.